Amen. If you have a Bible, I uh, would love for you to open up to Romans chapter 1 tonight. Uh, Romans, uh, you go through the Gospels, you come to Acts, and the first uh, letter, the first epistle in the New Testament is the letter to the church at Rome. So we've been talking about this and teasing this for uh, weeks now. We concluded our Bible study in Acts back in December. And finally, we are starting a brand new deep dive. And by deep dive, I mean the deepest of dives because Romans is a book that uh, we are going to be able to wring every uh, ounce of grace and truth uh, that we can out of, and, and, or we intend to at least. Uh, we are going to uh, spend several months, most likely, um, studying the book of Romans and you know, there are many different facets of ministry and pastoring that, uh, that you know, I love and, and some things that I uh, love less than, but uh, I, I love teaching the Bible and, and any pastor um, that, that doesn't, I think they're in the wrong profession, right? Uh, but I, I love teaching the Bible. I love reading. I love studying. I love teaching the Word of God. Uh, preparing Bible studies is a thrill because each session and season of preparation is a buffet of learning for me. Uh, so as I'm preparing to teach and preach. I'm learning along the way. There's not a time of preparation that God does not show me something that I did not know before. Uh, There's not a a time with God's Word that something doesn't just jump off the page that I've read over a hundred times, and there it is uh, for the first time, or at least to my eyes for the first time. But but that's because God's Word's alive, Uh, and uh, the Scripture says it's sharper than a two-edged sword. That means it's able to cut through whatever barriers we put in the way, whatever walls that the world puts up or the flesh puts up or the devil puts up, he's able to get through and he's able to get to our hearts and give us what we need. And of course, uh, just like we need oxygen to breathe, we need the Word of God uh, to be living as we should as Christians, to be growing as Christians, to be going as Christians. Uh, God's Word is that breath of life. Of course, that's what the Bible uh, says of itself. But uh, obviously, you know, every pastor, every teacher, preacher, uh, Sunday school teacher, whatever your position has ever been, if you've held the Bible as a teacher before, um, or even as a reader, uh, everybody has their favorite books of the Bible. Uh, everybody has their lesser favorite books of the Bible. We don't have any. We don't have books that we don't like, right? We just have some that we like less than others. Uh, but all of us have our favorites. Uh, and and I, as a pastor, um, I, I have some that I would love to teach through again and again and again. But uh, because I take this position seriously and sacredly, um, there are sixty six books to cover and teach. And uh, hopefully, in your time uh, here under my ministry. And as long as God allows me to hold this position, uh, my goal as a pastor is to go through the entire Bible. Um, sometimes we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Sometimes we go more topically, but we still, you know, allow the Bible to guide us and steer us. But um, uh, eventually, and, and the goal is that we will cover every uh, verse, every chapter, um, every book of the Bible. And again, that's not just something I want to do because I want to be able to say, hey, I did it. That's something that the, the, the Bible, God's Word, commands me and, and holds me accountable. To so, um, you know, as a part, as you're, as long as you're a member of this church, you know, I don't, you don't got to worry about this. But if you ever talk to somebody and they say, you know, what, we don't really cover the Bible, or we kind of take little bits and pieces there, but you know, our church doesn't really get in deep with the Bible. You know, it's a Christian. We should tell other people, and we should always be proclaiming to the world that, and and to Christians especially, that you know, God's word is so vital um, for our growth as Christians and as churches. We need to always be uh, reading and, and and studying. God's Word in its entirety. Uh, And the Bible, of course, holds pastors and holds teachers and preachers 
accountable to this. Uh, just a couple of verses. I, I don't got them uh, directly quoted on the screen, but um, I would encourage you to look up a few. Uh, Galatians 3.15, uh, Paul commands the leaders of the church to rightly divide the word, uh, as in teach it in a way that it is can be learned and understood and uh, digested and then reciprocated that what you learn here that you could go and teach someone else through that same lens. And uh, it's not just to be lectured from the pulpit, but it's to be taught and to be led. And, and that's something that I value uh, and prioritize a lot as a pastor. Um, there in Acts 20, uh, Paul says to the elders at Ephesus to declare the whole counsel of God. So again, there's emphasis on the whole, on the entirety of the Bible. Uh, Paul writes to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and 4 that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. So not just some scripture, but all scripture. And thankfully, uh, God has given us the preservation of scripture from front to back. Genesis to Revelation, all scripture, both Old and New Testament, is inspired by God. And that word inspired is the Greek word that means breathed out, that it's breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And we talk about this a lot, that it's breathed out onto the page and then it breathes on us from the page. So all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. So there isn't a verse, there isn't a chapter, there isn't a book of the Bible that is not profitable or beneficial to uh, the reader, the hearer, and, and of course uh, the, the Christian. And again there he says to Timothy in chapter 4, preach the word uh, in season and out of season. That as in when you feel like it, when you don't feel like it, when you feel like it's not your strong suit or when you feel like you're a pro at it. You as a minister, you as a messenger, and even you as Christians, we are meant to be messengers or to communicate God's word. We didn't write it. We, did, we don't have all the answers about it, but we are mere conduits that the word should go through. And the Holy Spirit does the hard part. He's, he brings clarity. He brings understanding. Whereas we sometimes can't do that. And, and of course, as a pastor, I depend on him to do that. Uh, along the way uh, of trying to stay true to these commands, some books I used to struggle with have become my go-to studies. Uh, and verses I memorized years ago are kind of deeper in the filing cabinet of my mind than um, others that I've added of late. So if you've been a believer for a while, if you've read the Bible for years, you know, you go through phases where you read something more than others. But uh, the, the goal is that you read the whole word and you hear from all of what God has to say. But, but one thing, that has stayed the same across many years of devotion. Uh, as, a, as a Christian, uh, before I was a minister, and, and obviously as a minister, um, my love for and passion for the book of Romans has been, uh, you know, top shelf um, for many years. You know, Romans is hands down the most rich, deep, revelatory book of the Bible. Uh, and again, we, we just read from Timothy where Paul says all scripture is inspired. Um, so uh, all scripture is equally inspired, but by all means, there are some books that are um, that, that carry a greater weight or that have a greater impact. And of course, Romans, I, I do believe, is the most rich, deep, revelatory book of the Bible. If you could only have one book, and thankfully we have all 66, but if you could only have one, I think Romans would be the one. Uh, Romans, uh, it, my goodness, it covers the historical uh, message of the Bible. It covers uh, what it means to be a follower, a believer in Christ, and what it means to follow him. Romans covers everything from Old Testament to New Testament. It sums up, ties those threads, and it 
gives us uh, the new direction to go in. So uh, Romans alone could make a difference in your life uh, beyond maybe any other book of the Bible. And, and I really believe that Romans is that perfect combination of what was longed for in the Old Testament. We're going to read a lot in Romans uh, 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 about or how Paul calls back to the Old Testament and talks about what the prophets said or what Abraham did or what Moses did and what so forth did. Paul's going to call back to the Old Testament a lot because Romans is uh, that perfect combination of what was longed for in the Old Testament and what has been made a reality with the New Testament, uh, what the gospel set in motion and what the church has inherited. So I could go on and on and I could gush more and more, but we'll get to all this along the way as we study. Uh, I went through a couple of weeks ago and I was just kind of combing the, the book for what I think would be the most memorable or the most memorized verses in the book. And of course, not all of us are, are as good with our memories as others, but if you are someone who can memorize, and of course you memorize songs, right? You've you memorized uh, recipes. We memorize more than we think we can. Uh, uh, and, and sometimes we th- think, well, you know, I'm not, I don't have that kind of a mind. Of course you do. Uh, we just have to put our minds to it. Uh, if you are somebody who memorizes scripture, or even if you aren't, you, you should be, or at least you should try to be, or at least write them down and carry them with you every once in a while. Uh, but I think Romans probably has at least 40 verses that are, uh, that are up there as, man, these, these should be committed to memory. There's at least one per chapter. Sometimes there's three or four per chapter. Um, But I don't think there's any other book of the Bible that has as many verses or as many statements that are as important and, and, and should be committed to memory. So um, not that it's a competition, right? It's not that Rome, Paul was trying to say, hey, look what I can do. Uh, he wrote the other, many other New Testament books, and they're just as important. Uh, but I say all this that if you haven't spent a quality, lengthy time studying Romans. You need to. And if you're with us for the next four or five months, you'll be greatly blessed and find tremendous strength, I really believe. So uh, tonight is going to be more of an introduction of the book of Romans, uh, contextually and kind of understanding the format of it. Uh, But we will cover the first half of the chapter uh, of chapter one. Uh, But uh, we're going to kind of see how the book developed and and, and how it was produced. And uh, we're also going to anchor our conversation around a specific theme uh, that that will become, that really kind of gives the rest of the book, it, it's, it's, or kind of fleshes out the rest of the book around it. Um, so I, I want to begin our time by looking at the first eight verses, and these verses set the tone not just for the first chapter, but for the whole book. And uh, you could almost say that all the Bible flows into Romans. It, just in these first eight verses, you can see the Old Testament and you can see the gospel and you can see what it means to follow Jesus. And, and just these eight verses kind of capture the whole book of Romans uh, in a microcosm. So follow along with me, if you will. Romans 1, chapter, uh, Romans 1, verse 1 through 8. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, that's the Old Testament, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God which with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace in apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you, you, that includes us all these years later, among whom you are the called of Jesus Christ. 
to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, Paul, of course, when he says it's spoken of throughout the whole world, the world was small back then, but now all these years later, uh, literally the faith of the Roman church is still spoken of throughout the whole world. It's pretty incredible. Uh, Now, in these verses, we really get the sense that Paul knows that he's writing his masterpiece. He knows he's writing his magnum opus. He declares that Christianity uh, is, he declares that Christianity was waited for and anticipated for ages. prophesied by the old scriptures. Uh, He declares that Jesus has fulfilled the longing of the hearts of old. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, God's promise to the world. He also details how Christianity brought real change that every heart was hoping for and finally and fully made possible to know God. We see in verse number two, we see Paul declare that Christianity is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We see in verse number four that Christianity, we see Paul detail what it means to be filled with the Spirit of Christ, raised from the dead, receiving grace uh, by faith. So we see him declare that Christianity is the fulfillment of old. We see him detail how Christianity is the way to know God. And then he defines what it means to be a Christian, enticing every reader to want to know more. In verses uh, verses. 6, 7, and 8, we see Paul uh, talk about our belonging to God, how we are loved by God, we are called by God, that we are given grace and peace from God. That's what it means to be a Christian. He defines Christianity. You belong to God. You are loved by God. You are called by God. You are filled with and given grace and peace. Does it get any better than that? Now, we'll break all this down even more in a little bit, but I want to set the table clearly and comprehensively as we start to unpack some things uh, more in full. And and as we've seen in this introduction, uh, Romans is going to speak to and going to interpret every book that come before it and set the pace for those that follow. Romans is the intersection for every era and genre of Scripture. And by era, I mean the Old Testament, history from Abraham, Moses, David, the Psalms, all the Old Testament, every genre of Scripture runs through Romans. And, And if you ever hear me say things like, well, we interpret the Old Testament because of this in the New Testament. Romans is really what introduces that lens to us. The reason why sometimes when you read the book of Exodus, you've got to bring it through the New Testament is because Romans helps us understand that what was given to us back then is incomplete. What's given to us back then requires being filtered through the new. And Romans helps, gives us the tools to filter and interpret and understand, well, that's what Abraham was talking about. That's what Moses was talking about. That's what David was talking about. So when you read the Old Testament, it's so very important to always be understanding the the way the New Testament interprets it. And Romans helps you develop that as a second nature. Romans will help you be able to read something in the Old Testament and without even blinking an eye saying, that's what I should do with this, or that's what that means, or that's what that's a picture of. Romans equips you to be able to see what was unfulfilled in the Old Testament, but what is fulfilled 
through Christ. It, it doesn't mean the old isn't useful, but it makes it useful because otherwise it's incomplete. Isn't that what Jesus said? I have not come to remove the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them as in you can't use them properly without me. And Paul through the book of Romans, is going to teach us how to interpret Scripture, how to handle the Scripture in the right and proper way. So keep an eye on that throughout this study. Uh, you probably already felt this prior to tonight, but I think that all of us can gather that Romans is just one of the most important books of the Bible. And it's one of the most read, quoted. It's undeniably influential more than probably any other. Uh, if you were to ask most Christians, I'm sure a high percentage of the time, they would say uh, Romans is one of the most helpful, enlightening books of the Bible. So in retrospect, it makes sense that such a weighty letter would have been written to and would have addressed the church at Rome. And again, not that the church at Galatia or Ephesus or Colossae wasn't as important, but the fact that this important letter was written to Rome, I don't think that's insignificant. I don't think that's a coincidence because we all know the significance of Rome. Now, in the ancient world, Rome was significant because it was the heart of the empire. But we remember it for being significant in that it gave birth to the church and, and, and allowed the church to grow and grow and build beyond uh, what was once in the outskirts or in the alleyways took a stage um, front and center, uh, its very existence, the church at Rome in these days, its very existence defied the odds. It, its persistence defied the odds. Uh, but I think that just speaks to God's power to preserve and desire to upend the expectations of man. So just want to let you know, or want to give you a little bit of background about how the church at Rome got started. If, you're, if you don't know, we'll get you filled in. The church at Rome started like many churches did in the New Testament age. The church at Rome got its start at Pentecost. And of course, that's in Acts chapter 2. Uh, back in Acts 2, you know, the Holy Spirit pours out or God pours the Holy Spirit out. He uses the disciples to proclaim Jesus to the Jews there at the festival of Pentecost. Now remember, uh, there were Jews from all over the world making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, for that festival. It, they would come in for the festival of Passover, the festival um, of Pentecost, and a few other festivals throughout the year. Uh, so for this particular one, there were Jews that made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem from all over the world. Now, maybe you're wondering, why were there Jews all over the world, especially so long ago when people kind of stayed where they were born and, and, and raised? And that's a good question. If you've, ever, if you've ever thought about it, maybe you should. Um, remember in the Old Testament, the Jews were taken into captivity to Babylon. And then while they were in captivity in Babylon, Persia conquered Babylon. And Persia was a large empire, not just confined to the modern-day country of Iraq or Iran like Babylon. Persia spread all around the Middle East, even to the Mediterranean Sea. So as the Jews were assimilated by the Persian Empire, many of them began to be dispersed throughout the Middle East into the Mediterranean area, eventually into Europe. And as time would go on, uh, the Jews understood that they did not have to be in Jerusalem to worship God because they didn't have a temple for many years. And even when they built the temple, they realized that God could be worshipped separate from the temple. The other temple was special, but to the Jews even, they realized that you could worship God anywhere. So they began to build these little communities called synagogues. And the synagogues 
similar to the local church, were these little stationary outposts that were connected to the temple, that were similar to the temple, but were in these local areas where the Jews had created communities. And from about 300 um, BC to the end of the BC era, these synagogues popped up all over the Mediterranean region, all over the Middle East. And by the time you get to the New Testament, there are synagogues all over even Europe. So that, that's why there would have been Romans, uh, Jewish people living in Rome, having a synagogue in Rome that would have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But while they're at Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls, Peter and the disciples preach the gospel, and many of the Jews that had came from Rome to Jerusalem go back home to Rome with Jesus in their hearts. And they go back to their synagogue with the gospel in tow. So these Jews went to their synagogue, they preached Jesus to their Jewish brothers and sisters, they proclaimed that Jesus fulfills their Old Testament, and many of the Jews, as, a, as part of that synagogue in Rome, uh, believed in Jesus and split off and started their own local church. And we'll talk about two people that were a part of that in just a minute. So the church would have been fledgling for about a decade and a half uh, from around 35 uh, AD to around 48 to 50 AD. Uh, but over time, a lot of people within the heart of the Roman Empire began exalting Jesus, not just as Lord, not just as God, but what really rubbed the Romans the wrong way, they began exalting Jesus as King. And that made Rome very nervous and uncomfortable. In Acts 17, there's a scene in Thessalonica where it's reported, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And this makes Caesar very nervous. And because many of the Christians were Jews, uh, Rome decides that the Jews are a problem. That it's not just the people that are following this guy named Christ, it's all the Jews uh, as a whole. So around 48 AD, this uh, was, was recorded in history, as the Jews were making constant disturbance at the instigation of Christus, or Jesus Christ, Claudius Caesar expelled them from Rome. So around 48 AD, not all the Jews were forced to leave, but many of the Jews were exiled from the main Roman territory. And why is this important? Because Rome knew that many or most of the Jews were, uh, were converting, more, than, more than, uh, than Gentiles, the Jews were converting to, to Christianity, and Rome blamed the Jews for bringing this knowledge of this other king. And they didn't understand it, they just knew that they crucified this guy, and that wasn't a good thing that he was still being worshipped and exalted as king. So, uh, the Jews were expelled from Rome. And while the Apostle Paul was making his way through the Mediterranean Sea, getting closer and closer to the Roman mainland, he met two Jewish believers on their way out of Rome. Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens, Greece, and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy, Rome, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So we believe, and when we get to Romans uh, 16, we'll see Paul mention Aquila and Priscilla as being anchors, leaders in this church. So it's easy for us to put together that Aquila and Priscilla were members, maybe founding members of the Roman church. They left 
because of fear for their lives, they left to find safe haven outside of Rome. They met the Apostle Paul, and they told Paul about the church at Rome. And this began to cause Paul to, his mind began to race, and he began to to wonder, what could God do if the church at the heart of the empire got on fire and began to grow? What could happen if the Roman church began to expand and grow and from the inside, from the middle of the empire, the Christian movement could spread? What if we could topple the empire from within? So, on his journeys uh, throughout the Greek, Greek, uh, the Greco-Roman area, Paul began to make contacts, and eventually Paul sat down to write a letter to the Roman church. And maybe he sent it back with Aquila and Priscilla because it would be years before he would go there himself. But Paul longed to go there because he believed this church at Rome could be the spark that lights the fire that changes the world. And little did he know, or maybe he did know, That's exactly what would happen hundreds of years later. Now, as persecution ramped up, opposition would intensify. Paul wanted the Roman church to be strong and devoted as a community. And and on the very top shelf thing about Romans, that Paul does a masterful job at uniting the people. And he specifically focuses on harmonizing the nations under God through Christ. Paul wants that wants to make sure that both the Jews and the Greeks, the Jews and the Gentiles, understand they are not opponents, but they have a shared purpose. And, and what we read early on in Romans, and you're going to see this in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, Paul uh, focuses on the Jews and the Gentiles understanding, yes, their history and heritage is separate, but their desire and destiny was to be united. So when you read in the first couple of chapters about Paul talking about Jews and Gentiles as if they're separate entities, of course, separate people groups, he's seeking to harmonize them because he doesn't want there to be these silly dividing lines between race and ethnicities because God's kingdom doesn't see anything like that like the world does as far as categories and colors. Paul addresses the Jews regarding their potential resistance of Gentiles coming to Jesus. He addresses the Gentiles regarding their likely confusion over some of the Jewish traditions. Ultimately, he's going to appeal to both Jew and Gentile the generational quest for the same thing. And Paul is going to remind the Jews and Gentiles that both of you, both of y'all, Y'all have been looking for the same thing. You have all been searching for the same thing. And in Christ, we find what religion failed to give us and provide and secure for us. So I want you to listen uh, to Paul address the people with a little bit more personal connection in these next few verses. And then he's going to drop his thesis. He's going to drop his reason for writing at the end of this passage. See if you can pick it up. Verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may encourage or be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, 
that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, and I might that I might have some fruit among you also, just as the other Gentiles. Now, this is a bit aside, a bit of an aside, but do you sense, do you hear Paul's genuine desire to be with them? Do you see that? Paul longs for the real, authentic, unrestricted fellowship of the local church. Now, here's what's really awesome about Paul. Paul was always going from one church to another. If Paul wasn't in church, he was on the way to church, okay? So Paul was always in fellowship with the local church. But do you see that Paul was excited about getting together with a new group of believers? Because Paul, if anybody believed in it, he did. Paul was a believer in the beauty and the awesome, unique, exclusive fellowship found in the local church. What do we do with this for those that make excuses about the church? And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's important that, that we say, talk about this because we all have friends and family and neighbors and coworkers who say, I love Jesus, but I don't know about the church. Who say church isn't a big deal, it's not essential. And we kind of just say, we kind of agree or we kind of just say, well, of course, okay, that's fine. I don't want to hurt your feelings. But the Bible is clear. It's essential for believers to find the association, the blessing, and the growth that is, that is only available as a member of the body of Christ, as a member of the local church. And again, we see Paul, more than just this, talk about, he just gushes about longing to be with them and growing with them and fellowship with them. It's unmistakable how much he believed in the local church. Of course, he started quite a few of them. But now we'll conclude by looking at verses 14 through 17, and we'll camp out here just for a few minutes. Paul says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as in, is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So Paul says, I, 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 God has called me to everybody, to everybody. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Let me ask you this. Have you, ever, have you ever had something or bought something and you told someone that you bought it and then they come over and they want to know how it's going but you kind of don't want to talk about it because it wasn't all that you hyped it up to be? Have you ever, maybe you bought something to cook with or bought something, you know, to, to do something around your house and you had talked about it, talked about it, talked about it, you finally got it and then when somebody said, hey, what, well, how's that thing working for you? Or how's it going? Or, you know, are, do you like the thing? Or, you know, is it working out well? You, you kind of just, oh, I don't want to talk about it because it's just not really working. That's what Paul's, that's the kind of the, the context for when he says, I am not ashamed. Paul's basically saying, you're not going to have to ask me how Jesus is going, how it's working for me. I'm going to tell you before you even ask me. That's how much of a proponent I am. That's how much of a believer I am. That's how much, how bold I am about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I was talking a lot about it, and I know you've heard me talk a lot about it, but now that we're face to face, I've got a whole lot more to say about it. You don't got to ask me, because I'm here to tell you. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, also for the Greek, for in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as, is it, as it is written. 
the just or the righteous shall live by faith. So let's wrap up around a few points if we can. He says in verse 14, I am a debtor. I am under obligation to preach Jesus because there is no salvation found in any other name. Now, he's not doing this against his will. Again, in verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed. I am bold. I am super excited to talk to you about Jesus because he is making a difference in my life. So when he says, I'm under obligation, he's not saying this because he's under a mandate from God. He's saying this because he senses the desperation, the the longing in the heart of the people. He is not saying this, hey, I've got to do this because God's told me I've got to do it. Even though that is true, God has told us we have to do this. He's saying, I see in the hearts and the eyes of people a desperation that they cannot find answers to through this world. You know why Paul is determined to preach Jesus everywhere? Because he wants everyone to find life and hope that he's found. Again, verse 15, he says, I am ready. The Greek there is, I am eager. He is under compulsion. He's by no means ashamed of what he has to offer, of what God has to offer and provide through Christ. I want you to look at this, pay attention to this though, before we close. Why does he say, everyone who believes for the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is, what is that about? Well, verse 17 helps us understand what Paul is talking about. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As in, all throughout history, both Jew and Gentile, but we'll focus on the Jews because the Old Testament is really their story. All throughout history, the human story is really one of a quest for righteousness, a quest for this divine blessing that seems elusive, this quest for and this desire for reconciliation to God, peace from God, and a right standing with God. The human story is really one of longing for righteous standing with God. He wasn't necessarily privy to the Gentiles' own quest, but he knew that their own religions were their own attempts to find God and make peace with him, and he knew it wasn't working. Remember when Paul went to Athens at Mars Hill, he saw in the Gentiles something that that complimented his spirit because as a Jew, he remembered what it was like before he was saved, seeking after God. He said this at Athens in Acts 17. Paul standing up in the midst of the Areopagus, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Next slide. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. So Paul says, I see that you're very religious. I was too. I see that you're searching for some connection to God. I've been there myself and I can share the good news with you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Paul says, "I, I used to be there. I was like you. I thought God lived in a temple. I thought God lived in a house in a certain place in a certain day. I used to be just like y'all. But I've realized God does not live in a temple. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. 
that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. So you see, Paul relates to the Gentiles because the Jews and the Gentiles had long been on a quest for a right standing with God. You could almost summarize the Old Testament story, though, as, Israel, as a record of Israel searching for and longing for a right standing with God and learning all the ways that he could not be found. But the gospel is that Jesus is our way to God. Jesus is our righteousness. He gives us what we cannot find through religion. John chapter 1, verse 16, he writes, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. John says, Indeed, it is undeniable that from him and through him we have received grace from God. And this grace is that gift of righteousness. It is the favor, the divine blessing that we cannot find through any other means or through any other uh, source. In the Old Testament, it's clear that God made man and woman in fellowship with him, in unity and in, uh, uh, in harmony with him, yet sin pulled us away. And Genesis really chronicles the story of God seeking uh, uh, to restore mankind to him. And uh, he tells Abraham, he calls Abraham out of, uh, out of the sea of millions of people, and he says, Abraham, I know you've been doing it the way the world has told you to do it, but I want you to follow me. I will bless you. You cannot find this blessing any other way. I will bless you, and through you I'll bless the whole world. The idea that Abraham's family would have this special relationship with God and would bring a blessing to the world is, is a preview of the gospel. Of course, the way that Abraham received that blessing or had that blessing internalized is very important. In Genesis 15, the scripture says he believed the Lord and God gave him a right standing, that it was by faith that Abraham was made righteous. And that's something that the Jews lost sight of again and again and again. And of course, the Gentiles never understood that we are saved not by what we do. We are not kept away from God because of what we've done wrong. We are saved by faith in who he is and what he has done right. If you read the story of Abraham, we see that his children and grandchildren fight against each other, trying to steal the blessing from one another, when all the while it was always just by faith. Even when the law was given, the great misunderstanding of the law, the Mosaic law was not with a system meant to emphasize God's promise and provision, not challenge man to provide and measure up for himself. The law of Moses was meant to remind people, you've sinned, yet God has provided a way for you to be forgiven. And one day, this will all be replaced with something permanent. Even the, the benediction that Aaron spoke over the congregation, notice the language. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. Lift you up and give you. All that is not what we bring. It's what God gives to us, what God brings to us. It's a gift from God to us. It's always been that way. But the Jews could not see that, and the Gentiles never saw that. Yet years later, when the nation of Israel was destroyed and the people of God were wondering if they had lost all hope to find a way back to God, the prophet Habakkuk rose up. And Habakkuk said this to the people as they were giving up. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The righteous shall live by faith. He gives a promise to the readers in the Old Testament, but that is for us in the New. And Paul quotes that in verse 17. The righteous or the just shall live by 
faith. And that is the tone that, we, that, that is set for the rest of this book. God has provided a way of salvation. We just have to trust in him, trust his plan, and see him make the difference for us, through us, and within us. We find our blessing from God, our right standing with God, forgiveness and favor from God, grace and mercy from God. We find our way back to God through Jesus by faith in what he has done for us. Romans is going to dismantle all that we think we can do for God. Romans is going to dismantle all that we think keeps us from God. And Romans is going to make it very clear. We are saved by faith in what Jesus has done, that we receive the gift of salvation free by faith because of God's grace. And we're going to talk a lot about grace over the next few months. Maybe you've heard this old acronym before that you could almost break down grace like this. It's God's righteousness at Christ's expense, that God gives us a right standing because of what Christ did for us. It's God's righteousness. It's God's riches at the expense of our Savior's blood. God has purchased for you what you cannot earn for yourself, what you cannot obtain for yourself, and he's given it to you freely. If you want a right standing with God, all you have to do is trust in Jesus, follow him and his word. And as verse 16 says, God's grace awakens your heart to this free gift. And our faith in Christ activates God's power in us. God's grace wakes us up. God's grace opens our eyes to this good news and it gives us, our, gives us the ability to hear it and receive it. And it's your faith, your response, your decision, your choice responding to God's grace. It's your faith in Christ that activates this power in you. And by all means, Paul says, it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. It's that simple. And that's what we have to look forward to over the next few months. What, just what is available to us if we truly believe, if we truly put our faith in Jesus Christ, the power of God. And Romans is gonna show us the power of God, the power that we receive when we quit trying to obtain it ourselves, when we quit trying to earn it, we quit trying to fight for it and work for it, when we start trusting and resting and believing and receiving what God has made available to us for free, for free, the power of God. Church, thank you for, I know this lengthy introduction, thank you for being here with us tonight, for allowing God to hopefully open our eyes and our hearts and really prepare us for what I really believe could be the most important Bible study that we've had in a long time. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Lord, we could talk about just Romans 1, half of Romans 1 all night. It is amazing the table you've set for us. Lord, thank you for showing us that Jesus Christ made a difference in the world, that he drew a line in the sand and everything since his death and resurrection has been based on what he has done. 
And we no longer have to fight for our salvation, work for salvation. We no longer have to earn it or achieve it. It is given to us by faith in what Jesus did. His finished work forever settled in heaven. Our right, our ability to stand before you. Lord, I pray that we all would be warmed by this and renewed by this uh, promise of salvation that comes from what Jesus has done. Lord, would you move through this house tonight and would you remind each and every one of us uh, just how great a gift of salvation uh, we have received and would you stir our hearts uh, to respond to this word, respond to this uh, Bible study that we might go into the world and proclaim like the Apostle Paul did. Lord, we thank you. We give you praise, glory for all these things. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.